Welcome to Tom SciCast. Now, today, I'm going to talk about something kind of fun. And this is the Silurian Hypothesis. Now, if you're not familiar with that one, it came from like an episode of Doctor Who a few years ago, where they woke up these advanced aliens that were in hibernation. So the Silurian Hypothesis has become this idea that there may have been a technologically advanced civilization before humans. Now, before you think I've gone off the deep end and have watched one too many episodes of Doctor Who or The X-Files, I'm just going to come out and say, no, I don't think an advanced civilization evolved on the Earth before humans. But I love this question. It's one of those what-if questions. And it's our imagination, it's some speculation, and we know we like this. So what if there was an advanced civilization before us? What if? Okay, well, this hypothesis was actually formalized in 2018 by two physicists, Adam Frank and Gavin Smith. And of course, they didn't believe there was an advanced civilization before us either, but it does ask, what if? And we can use that as a thought experiment. Now, for me, this is really interesting because can we detect alien civilizations that may have been here on Earth, but it could also inform us on how we might detect them elsewhere in the universe. So here's this thing. We can ask a couple of basic questions here. And one of those is very important for us. And that is, at what point could a planet host a technologically advanced civilization? Or, you know, when was the earliest that one could have evolved on Earth? I mean, we're 4.6 billion years old. Why did it take 4.6 billion years for the first technologically advanced civilization to appear? I mean, why did it take so long? And the next question is, well, what clues would an advanced civilization have left behind that we could detect? And for how long would those clues be there? So some additional questions we could ask, you know, have there been civilizations before humans? I don't think so, but it's a good thought question, right? Could aliens have visited us in the past and left evidence? And the one to me that's really important is what is going to be the legacy of humans on our planet? Let's say we go away or we go extinct. How long will our impact be felt on the planet? So let's think about this. A technologically advanced civilization on the planet. And first of all, what do I mean by technologically advanced? Notice I always avoid uh, intelligent civilizations because to me, intelligence is a bit of a loaded question. My dog has intelligence. Dolphins have intelligence. Octopus have intelligence. And in fact, most animals with any amount of brain have some degree of intelligence. So let's stick with technologically advanced civilizations. There's different ways we can think about this. One is you've evolved to the ability that you don't need to evolve anymore because you can invent new technologies. So right now I'm watching the snow out here, but I've got a heater on and I've got you know a long sleeve shirt, so I'm staying warm. And perhaps more importantly, you know they have some basic understanding of physics, like Maxwell's equations that govern electromagnetic radiation, you know, light and radio waves and relativity and quantum mechanics so they can make computers and radios and TVs. So kind of like us, right? I mean, this is the template that I always use is humans are a technologically advanced civilization. So 
let's say something that smart with, ah, there I go, using that word smart or intelligence again, but that level of achievement. Okay. So when, when could our planet have hosted a technologically advanced civilization? Now, for me, there are basically two possibilities. One is, let's say, aliens came in the past and were able to colonize our planet. Okay, probably not, but just roll with me on this thought experiment. At what point could our planet have actually hosted a technologically advanced civilization? And then secondly, what would it have taken for an advanced civilization to evolve here on our planet? We know it took 4.6 billion years, but at what point could one may have evolved earlier? So let's talk about this. Let's think about like, what does this planet need or what would any planet need to host a technologically advanced civilization? I'm going to start with it evolving right here, because this to me is a really interesting question that has a lot of implications for astrobiology and where we might look for, you know, something similar to us. So let's think about this. You have all of these key evolutionary innovations that have to occur over time, and they basically have to do it sequentially. And I've talked a lot about these key evolutionary events leading up to humans, and we know most of them. You have to have abiogenesis. You have to have the origins of life that transition from geochemistry to biochemistry. And we've talked about how information is very important. So then you have to have the evolution of DNA replication or replication of that information that's taken control of that system. And from there, you need photosynthesis, oxygenic photosynthesis to be specific, because you need to build up oxygen in the atmosphere for multiple reasons, you know, creating the ozone layer to protect us from ultraviolet light. You need oxygen to energize life because you need to make a lot more ATP or whatever your energy currency is going to be. You need something like eukaryogenesis. Rather than make ATP across your outer membrane or whatever your energy currency is, it could be another activated nucleotide, but here on Earth, it's ATP. So you have to internalize that energy production. Now we do it using the mitochondrium. So you can pack more and more mitochondria into your cells. You make more ATP using oxygen and you can evolve larger, more complex cells that pave the way for multicellular life. So the other evolution innovation is multicellular life using that internalized energy production. To me, that's a just fascinating story. And then you not only have to create multicellular life, you need something that's animal-like. And for me, some of those defining characters are things like symmetry, cephalization, uh, not just symmetry, but bilateral symmetry, cephalization, a right and a left, a front and a back, a top and a bottom. And you need muscles and a nervous system and sensory systems. And you can take in these senses and respond to the environment by moving, coordinated by a nervous system. And you're probably going to be heterotrophic because you need a dense source of energy that photosynthesis probably won't give to you. So something, you know, the evolution of something animal-like. Then you need to make the transition onto land because I just don't really think that 
an advanced civilization is going to evolve underwater because water just doesn't work well with electricity. It doesn't work well with creating you know, electronics and you're never going to evolve fire. How are you going to smelt iron into steel? So you've got to make the transition onto land. And not only do you have to make the transition onto land, I think that the evolution of endothermy, you know, we think of that as warm-blooded, but I hate the term warm-blooded, but generating body heat through metabolism that can allow you to be active, whatever the temperature is outside. And on our planet, endothermic animals tend to have bigger brains and they have more complex behaviors than things that are ectothermic. I know, there's always those octopus. They're a little bit tricky, aren't they? They seem to have some intelligence about them. Whatever that intelligence is, I'm not sure. But at any rate, we get this endothermy. So these are some of those evolutionary innovations that we, we need to get something that can become intelligent. Oh, I know I use the word intelligent, but to develop a technologically advanced civilization. Now, interestingly on Earth, we know that there's been these key evolutionary innovations and then a really long time between the evolution of photosynthesis and aerobic respiration. And it seems like once oxygen levels got to a certain level, we had eukaryogenesis, you know, the origins of eukaryotic cells. But then there's another lag in time, you know, a billion years or so between the origins of eukaryotic cells and the emergence of multicellular life. And in fact, there's some evidence that the first ancestors to plants that were multicellular may actually go back a billion years. But we're still looking at a billion year lag time between the origins of eukaryotes and even the first inkling of a plant. And then it was still another almost 600, about 550 million years before we begin to see life moving onto land in the Silurian around 440 million years ago. I know, Silurian hypothesis, interesting. Now we do have evidence, indirect evidence, that life may have been on land before that, like microbial mats, maybe some fungi, maybe some early plants, hard to say. But we know that by 440 million years ago, we've got things like Cooksonia, these non-vascular plants were living on land. And then quickly after that, we see arthropods moving on with the plants and most likely the fungus as well. Okay, so we can give or take 50 million years of that transition onto land, but when we look at the overall age of the Earth, you know, 4.6 billion years, right? It still took a really, really long time for this to happen. So we know that, you know, evolution is very connected to the planet and what's happening with the planet. The evolution of complexity not just more complex organisms, but also more complex ecosystems. These things don't happen in a vacuum. And not only does the evolution of complex organisms affect the complex ecosystems, but this is also influenced by the environment in which they live in. And then they in turn influence the environment. So all of these things are interconnected. And I think that is very important. And I think that's an important part of the story. So the next question is, you know, why take so long for complexity to evolve on this planet. And I mean, lots of interactions, multicellular life, animals, plants, and complex ecosystems that have a lot of structure with lots of diversity, 
with all of these things interacting. Because you're not going to get a technologically advanced civilization on a planet with a bunch of bacterial mats and no complex ecosystems. So why take so long? Okay, keep asking that question, but let's think about this. There are, part of the answer may lie in the evolution of both the Earth and the Sun, so our planetary system. Now we know that about 4 billion years ago, the Sun was about 25% less bright than today. However, despite it being not as bright, it still put out a lot more ultraviolet light. With some estimates, putting the amount of ultraviolet light reaching the surface at 100 times what we get today. So not only do we have the ultraviolet light, but our sun was, shall we say, a bit more cantankerous when it was younger. It was throwing out a lot more coronal mass ejections, a lot more flares, and as a result, emitting more x-rays and charged particles that were slamming into the Earth. Now, all of these things would have made the surface of the Earth a bit challenging for life because ultraviolet light has enough energy to break apart organic molecules and small ones too, like methane and water. Okay, so early on in the Earth's history, the surface was getting bombarded by lots of ultraviolet light. And it really took a long time for the oxygen levels to build up in the atmosphere to filter out much of the ultraviolet light. We have an ozone layer, so that's good. We also had the solar wind. Now today, we know that the magnetosphere, the Earth's magnetic field, deflects much of the solar wind away from us, so we don't get those charged particles bombarding our surface. Now interestingly, new studies have come out that have showed that the magnetic field really didn't reach modern strength until about a billion, billion and a half years ago. And part of the reason, at least the way I understand it, is that the Earth had to cool down. And part of that cooling was the core, which is mostly iron and nickel, had to solidify, but the outer core hasn't. And when combined with the Earth's rotation, we get a magnetic field. And that magnetic field has been protecting us and our atmosphere from the solar wind. Because over time, what would happen is the solar wind would, would damage our atmosphere and strip it away. We just look at Mars for an example of a, a smaller planet that's lost its magnetic field. And as a result, it's lost much of its atmosphere and any other protection it may have had against ultraviolet light. So Mars is kind of like a dry, I don't want to say dead planet like I used to, but it definitely is not as conducive for life as the Earth may have been in the past. So here we are. We've got some planetary evolution going on. We've got a rise in oxygen levels and the ozone layer due to photosynthesis. We have the ramping up of a magnetic field as the Earth cools. And then lastly, that 440 million years ago, the Silurian, Silurian hypothesis here, but during that time, it's been estimated that the Earth's sun, that our sun basically entered middle age. And by entering middle age, it's kicking out less flares, less x-rays, less ultraviolet. And slowly, all of these changes in both the Earth and the Sun allowed for the evolution of multicellular life. Because multicellular life just can't handle a lot of ultraviolet, a lot of x-rays, or potentially even solar wind coming and all these charged particles hitting us. 
So as the earth evolved and the sun evolved and the sun entered middle age, especially by about 440 million years ago, it had calmed down enough that not only do we have multicellular life, but now finally the surface of the planet became habitable for complex life to live on it. Now that's interesting because that means it took almost 4 billion years for changes in our sun and changes in our planet to occur to make the planet not just habitable, it's clearly been habitable for about 4 billion years, but habitable for complex life. And without complex life, you can't get a technologically advanced civilization. So perhaps those key evolutionary innovations were occurring as fast as they could, but they couldn't go further until, hey, we had less ultraviolet light on the surface, or we have less coronal mass ejections hitting the surface of the planet. Now, to be clear, I also don't want to just discount random effects, contingency, that may have happened in the Earth's past that also slowed down these evolutionary progress. I know evolution. Evolution doesn't really have progress. It's not goal-oriented. I know this. But the march toward, you know, humans. There could have been random things, like the ice ages that gripped us during the boring billion that lasted tens of millions, maybe even hundreds of millions of years. And back during this cryogenian, when we were a snowball earth, perhaps the randomness of just the continents drifted over the equator, built some mountains, and through rock weathering, CO2 levels were scrubbed out of the atmosphere faster than they were put in, and we got gripped into a runaway greenhouse effect with glaciers and ice all the way down to the equator. And perhaps that was a big influence on slowing down the evolution of life. Or maybe it's all working together to have slowed down the evolution of multicellular life and complexity. And that's why it took 4.2 billion years. But I have this feeling that the sun entering middle age was incredibly important for life not only becoming complex, but also making that transition onto land. Because even though the cryogenian ended 635 million years ago, it still took almost 200 million years for the evolution of complexity and the transition to occur onto land. Now, interestingly, there's one more thing I'd like to point out about this transition onto land. It didn't happen quickly. I routinely point back to about 440 million years ago when we had Cooksonia during the Silurian. Those are those primitive plants. But there is some evidence going back almost 500 million years ago, or even longer than that, where we might have found spores of fungus and potentially plants living on land much before the Silurian, even back in the Cambrian. And then some people have also pointed out that the transition from plants moving onto land to forming forest took almost 100 million years for that to occur. Now, I've often wondered, did it really take plants that long to evolve vascular systems, roots, leaves, stomatas, cuticle, and of course, a lignin, which is this uh, proteinaceous structure inside the cell walls that basically makes a two by four from a leaf, right? Did it really take that long? Or was the time from the plants could just start eking out a living was it being slowed down because there was still a lot of ultraviolet light coming in, 
still getting bombarded by coronal mass ejections and particles and x-rays. And then the sun really had to like enter that middle age by about 444, 440 million years ago for those plants to be kind of released from this harsh environment so they could quickly evolve into these forests. I don't know. I mean, that, that to me is an answer. So if this is the case, then what that means is that a technologically advanced civilization on a planet much like ours, orbiting a G-type star, might take nearly four, four and a half billion years before a technologically advanced civilization could evolve on it. Because you had to have those key evolutionary innovations, but importantly, you had to have a planet spin up the magnetic field to protect it from the sun, and the sun had to enter in the middle age. So life could get started very early, but complex life took a while for it to evolve. So for me, maybe, you know, it takes that long. So that will narrow our window when searching for civilizations, right? You're going to look for a G-type star that might be four, four and a half billion years old before it could host complex life. That also goes to show that on our red dwarfs, that it might take a very long time for complex life to evolve on them because it takes billions and billions of years for those stars to enter middle age. And then the other one between us, you got G and then the K-type stars, which are smaller, which are thought to be more habitable than even our G-type star. Maybe, maybe a, a super Earth, you know, one and a half times the size of ours around a K-type star might be great. It might take eight, 10, 12 billion years for those smaller stars to reach middle age before you can get the evolution of complex life which is a prereq for, listen to me, I sound like a college professor, right? A prereq, right? Before you can actually get the advent or the evolution of advanced civilizations. And that's another important point. Can a, a planet orbiting a dwarf star maintain an atmosphere, maintain water on the surface long enough for it starts to enter into middle age? But that still has some other problems. Some of that is, well, an advanced civilization showing up 400, 300, even 200 million years ago would have been out of context in terms of the evolutionary innovations needed for something like a human. I mean, we could go back to the, to the Mesozoic era. There's dinosaurs. They were bipedal. They were walking around on two legs. They had free limbs. They also may have been endothermic, at least some of them were likely showing signs that they were endothermic, you know, generating that body heat. But interestingly, uh, during the Mesozoic, their brains just weren't that big compared to modern day mammals. And in fact, if you look at like average brain size going from the Paleozoic to the Mesozoic to the Cenozoic, we see an increase in brain size. And there's lots of speculation as to why brain sizes have continually gotten larger over time. I suspect it has to do with endothermy. I suspect it has to do with mammals having a very extended parental care. In fact, mammals and some birds are born what we call altricial, which means they're blind and helpless. But what that really allows you to do is have extended parental care and more time for your brain to develop. In fact, to humans, it takes you know a couple decades. In fact, males, guys, we don't even get our brain fully 
developed until our mid-20s. So in addition to needing a big brain, and not just a big brain, I mean, whales have a lot of bigger brains than humans, but our brain to body size ratio is very large. In fact, we have about the largest brain to body size ratio of any animal on the planet. So in addition to these big brains, brain to body size ratio to be exact, what else do you need for civilization? Well, we really relied on fossil fuels. I know, we're trying to get ourselves off of fossil fuels, but fossil fuels, coal, oil, natural gas, are a very dense energy source that's relatively easy to mine and easy to use. And I've often wondered, could you really get an advanced industrialized civilization without first starting with fossil fuels? Maybe, maybe not. But ours clearly required fossil fuels. So we probably on Earth had about enough fossil fuels around the end of the Carboniferous sometime around 300 million years ago to fuel a, an industrial revolution. But like I said, back then, just the evolution of brain size, brain to body size ratios just wasn't there. I honestly don't know why it took so long for us to get there. Maybe we needed fruits, the evolution of flowering plants to give us fruits. I, I don't know. It did take, you know, another couple hundred million years for that to happen. 100 and 300 and yeah, almost 300 million years. Okay, so maybe on another planet, the rate at which evolution led to a technologically advanced civilization could go quicker once the planet and the sun had evolved to a certain level that the sun was quiescent enough for complexity to evolve. Maybe it could go quicker on another planet. Maybe it never happens at all. But seeing all of these changes really does help us narrow down where we might want to look for a technologically advanced civilizations. Probably not around M dwarfs, the red dwarfs. Maybe we need to look for middle-aged stars rather than looking at younger stars. We could look at younger planetary systems for signs of life, but if we want to detect radio signals from somebody trying to communicate or just bleeding out radio signals like we do, then we can narrow our search for potentially middle-aged stars. But let's think about it this way. What if, what if ancient aliens did come and find the Earth, when could they have easily colonized it, and what would they have left behind? What could we detect? And this is another important thought experiment for me, because I'm very curious, what is a legacy of humanity? Let's start with way back. I mean, let's say aliens came and explored our abiogenesis planet back in the origins of life, abiogenesis is just occurring, oh, four billion years ago or so. If they visited us and saw abiogenesis, there would be almost no way of ever detecting them. Now, of course, I would imagine an advanced civilization with capabilities that could get here could easily set up you know, small colonies on the surface of the Earth, but I would assume they would breathe oxygen, so they would be living in very uh, confined areas. They just couldn't venture outside, not for at least another two billion years till we got enough oxygen in the atmosphere. <laughs> And the sci-fi speculation is, well, maybe that was part of their terraforming. They gave us photosynthesis. I doubt it. There's not much evidence for that either. But by about 2 billion years ago, it would have been easier for them to survive here because of more oxygen. And then finally, around a billion to half a billion years ago, 
oxygen levels were close enough to where they are today that if you wanted to have a sprawling civilization on our planet or create a city where you didn't have to wear breathing apparatus, then that's about when it would occur. And that would be, they were small and careful. We probably wouldn't have any evidence they were ever here. However, if there was a large civilization on this planet when there was enough oxygen for them to survive, assuming they were similar to us, which I would think so, well, there would be telltale signs. If we think about our civilization, just building a building, you, you dig into the soil, you create roads. Yeah, our roads get messed up very quickly, but they will also get covered and we would see them. We could see differences in the atmosphere if they had pollution. If they were really sprawling, they could affect rates of sedimentation. They could affect like streams and rivers and things like that. And we would see those disruptions. We, and if they had pollution, we would detect that in the atmosphere. So while there might not be any artifacts from a billion years ago left, I think that we could actually discover some evidence that they were here. And then the closer they were in time to us, the easier it would be to discover those artifacts. Now, here's some interesting things I often think about. In our imaginations, we have aliens interacting with us. We drink Romulan ale from Star Trek. We try all these exotic foods from the Klingon Empire. But if they had sugars that were left-handed, not right-handed, or amino acids that were right-handed versus left-handed, so if the organic molecules, their building blocks were different chirality, then they couldn't just come here and eat our foods. They couldn't grow native crops, right? Because there's no way they could digest them unless they had you know, chirality. They go both ways using both left-handed and right-handed amino acids. And on our planet, every living organism uses right-handed sugars and left-handed amino acids. So there would have to be some compatibility there. So because of probable differences in chirality, they would probably have to grow their own food here, which is another interesting thing because we don't see any evidence of that either. Now, if they were biochemically very similar to us, it would be interesting if they had given us some genes through uh, lateral gene transfer, some more interesting things to look for. Do we go out in the world and do we see like genes that just basically pop out of nowhere or, or proteins that we have no way of understanding how those proteins evolved? I don't think we've discovered that. I think every time we've looked at a complex protein that looked very different, we've been able to kind of figure out what its precursors was or where it came from. It just didn't seem to appear out of nowhere. But these are things we could look for. But like I said, you know, the further we go back in time, the less evidence there will be of anything ever being here. The closer they are to us, the more evidence we would see. And we basically don't see any evidence of aliens having colonized or lived here before. I'm not a UFO con or alien conspiracist by any stretch of the imagination. Can't say they haven't been here, but we just don't have any evidence of it. Now, my next thing that I like to think about is what is the legacy of humanity on our planet? Let's pretend for a second that humans go away tomorrow. I don't think that's gonna happen and you probably don't either. There's been a few documentaries on what would happen to the earth if humans went away tomorrow. Well, okay, probably not gonna happen, but let's do the thought experiment. How long would our footprint remain on this planet? 
I would venture for millions and millions of years, maybe even till the time when the planet becomes uninhabitable in about a billion and a half years. I know, maybe I'm overestimating our impact on the planet, but here's some ideas here. We've altered almost every biogeochemical process on the planet. Okay, bear with me. We're spiking carbon dioxide levels. That spike in carbon dioxide levels will be seen for millions of years. And in fact, we can go back about 56 million years ago to the Paleocene-Eocene thermal maximum, a time period when Earth's temperatures rapidly spiked and it was due to methane and CO2 rising in the atmosphere. We can detect that. We can go back 65 million years and we actually have fossils of the day the dinosaurs went extinct or at least the day when the meteor impacted down off the Yucatan Peninsula and sent a giant tsunami up into North America. We actually have fossil beds showing marine organisms right next to terrestrial organisms. That was basically the day it happened. So yeah, I mean, going up 56 million years, we could see the changes in our atmosphere. We've also, since about the 1900s, we had something called the Haber-Bosch process. This cracks nitrogen out of the atmosphere. And in fact, I've heard some microbiologists say that one of the key evolutionary innovations early in life was the ability to fix nitrogen. Because without that, you're not gonna get a complex ecosystem, let alone complex life, without enough nitrogen. So, jump ahead, 19 teens, Haber-Bosch, they developed the, the way to crack nitrogen out of the atmosphere. Today, about 2% of our energy production goes to making fertilizer by cracking nitrogen out of the atmosphere. We have doubled the amount of nitrogen. So we could see that. We could see the change in temperature. We could see the change in carbon dioxide. Also, all of the pollution that we've created, we can detect that as well. We've also altered many streams and rivers and their flow characteristics. We've clear-cut vast swaths of land that's gonna affect sedimentation rates. We've also built things, we've built roads. While we think our roads deteriorate quickly, if we went away tomorrow, they would, many of them would quickly get buried and would remain in the fossil record. So there's lots of evidence we would leave, both direct and indirect. Of course, the other direct evidence would be all of our buildings. Got them already buried with a lot of the basements and things like that, so. Yeah, those could be around for a very, very long time. Returning to an earlier comment I just made, our presence might be detectable for the next billion and a half years. I know, that, that's a big stretch of the imagination right there to think that we would have such a long-lasting impact. I mean, there's just not a lot of fossils, even on our planet today, going back one and a half billion years. So why do I think that our presence will be felt for that long? And it has to do with something called biogeography. If you think about the modern distribution of, let's say, mammals on our planet, but we can use this for a lot of different organisms. But a lot of the patterns of diversity on this planet are the result of biogeography and plate tectonics. So just think, you know, you've got Australia and you have all of those really cool marsupials down there from the thylacine. I know those are extinct. 
to kangaroos and koala bears. And then in North America, Africa, and Asia and Europe, we have a lot of what we think of as placental mammals that are different from those marsupials. One of the explanations for like why Australia has a lot more marsupials and the rest of the world has modern eutherians of the placental mammals has to do with plate tectonics. You see, marsupials are some of the oldest mammals and South America, Antarctica, and Australia split off before the evolution of placental mammals. So the marsupials were down around Antarctica, Australia, and South America. Well, when those all split apart themselves, Antarctica moved over the Antarctic Pole, the South Pole. It froze over basically everything down there went extinct, but Australia broke off and went northward and has remained very habitable for life ever since. South America also had a lot of marsupials. Then when it joined up with North America, a lot of animals in North America moved southward and caused another little extinction event during the Great American Interchange. But those large-scale patterns are the result of biogeography and plate tectonics. And these patterns of diversity repeated over and over and over again from reptiles to amphibians and mammals and birds. Even though birds move around, there's still some deep splits based on these patterns of biogeography. So here's our legacy. This is how the impact of humans will be felt for the rest of the time that this planet is habitable. You see, we are causing a sixth mass extinction. Now, we've had previous mass extinctions. There's been about five of them, you know, starting back with the end of the Ordovician, the end Permian, the end Cretaceous. Now we're basically in Cenozoic, I guess, but we're in the sixth mass extinction. And unlike the other mass extinctions, this one is caused by us. It's caused by humans. And we're doing this because we are simultaneously hurling a lot of insults at life on this planet. I get hurling insults. Well, not only are we just causing this rapid climate change, but we're also creating a lot of pollution. We're deforesting large parts of our planet. We are altering ecosystems rapidly. We're simplifying them so they're becoming less complex. We are also over harvesting slash hunting much of the world's biodiversity. And we are also introducing species all around the world as invasive species that are displacing native ones. And that last part, that invasive species thing is very important for our legacy. Because if we look at the large patterns of diversity today, for the most part, they make sense. There's marsupials in Australia. There's the placentals in Africa, Asia, Europe, and North America. Because we can understand that distribution based on plate tectonics and the evolutionary history of those organisms. But as we wipe out 50%, 75%, 80%, we don't know how bad this mass extinction is going to be until we're on the other side of it. But we're going to totally wipe everything out. But it's the invasive species. Those species that can survive well in an altered environment created by humans those species will be the seeds of genetic diversity going forward. So think about that. Pigeons and house sparrows one day are going to diversify into a lot of different species. 
So if I were to jump ahead 100 million years and I'm trying to understand the patterns of diversity on this planet, they're not going to make a lot of sense. Prior to humans, you'll see you know, this distribution of fossils in the fossil record. You'll see our mass extinction event. But then you'll see species that are like worldwide appear all at once and then diversify into new species. And in our fossil record, we just don't see that. It would be like finding fossils of pigeons only in Europe. And then in the next layer, they're everywhere around the world all at once. And you're going, well, how could they have gotten to all these different parts of the continents? They couldn't just get there on their own. Something had to, had to move them there. And because we've moved everything around unnaturally, that's going to be a permanent part of not just the fossil record, but also of all of the diversity that's ever going to happen on this planet, right? Especially for plants and animals, all of that diversity is going to be the result of what we have done today. And that will be around for, you know, the next billion years. So that's why I think that humans, that our legacy of our, of our civilization, if we were to go away, even in a few thousands of years or tens of thousands of years, that that legacy would always be present. And in fact, I've done a podcast on this, but that's why I'm like, we're not in the Cenozoic anymore. We are in the homogenozoic because we've homogenized the world's biota, or at least, or at least we're in the process of doing it. So we're wiping out all the species and we're going to reseed diversity with a few invasive species that do well around us. And they're going to, of course, be widespread throughout the world. And if you were to look back in the fossil record, you're going to see that they were in one spot and then they're everywhere. And we see a new round of diversity from that. And that to me is a, a very interesting thing to think about. So that's why we're actually in the homogenozoic, even though we're debating on whether or not we're in the Anthropocene or the Holocene. Yeah, 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 that's, that's true. But the reality is because we've homogenized the world's biota so much, that we've entered into a new geological era, just not some new epoch. Okay, so this Silurian hypothesis to me is actually really fun to think about because it sets up these thought experiments. Like what does it take for a planet not just to be habitable, but habitable for complex life? What steps does it have to go through before it can get there, both of the evolution of life and the evolution of that planetary system. And this would definitely help narrow where we might search for a technologically advanced civilization. And then the other part of that thought experiment is, well, we can imagine that they were here. What could we look for? And that could also have us think about what we might look for on other worlds. And then also to think about what is the legacy of humanity on this planet? And even though we have been here a very, very short time, so in my mind, humans are going to have this really long legacy lasting as long as this planet is habitable for complex life. I make that distinction because, you know, long after the last animal or the descendants of animals, it'd still be animals, perished, so it's just inhospitable to them, I could imagine that the bacteria and other prokaryotes would survive for millions of years, 
because they can survive some harsh environments in places that animals just don't do well in. So maybe, you know, when the Earth is at the end of its habitability for all life, it might be difficult to find the legacy of humans if we went away today. Of course, in other podcasts, I've speculated that humans might survive for a very, very long time on this planet, at least as long as it's going to be habitable toward complex life. And the last thing that I, I want to leave you with is part of my journey of understanding astrobiology and learning about these different theories. And at first, I would hear the Silurian hypothesis and I would laugh it off. I'm like, this is ridiculous. There's no way that there's been an advanced civilization on Earth before. But what I missed earlier, what I just didn't understand or get is that these hypotheses, even though they're unlikely to be true, they can get us thinking about these other questions like, when does a planet become habitable? What steps does it take? What's our legacy? And because of the Solarian hypothesis, I've actually thought a lot more about that now. So even though something might not be really plausible, it can still help us understand or push our understanding forward. And that's important. And I've had the same epiphany with the Kardashev scale, which will be uh, something I'm going to revisit later. So today's podcast is very exciting for me because I've been working on building my studio office for a very long time. No, it's not done yet, but it's done enough that I am now doing my very first podcast from my studio office, which I'm very, very excited about. I hope you enjoyed this, thinking about the Silurian hypothesis and ancient civilizations and aliens. It's always a fun topic for me to talk about. Until next time, this is Tom Sycast.